The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here today. Now listen, if you if you got questions this morning, which you might have, Try to get them in early so we can try to get those questions answered, okay? Like I said, you can send your question whenever. My phone is on silent, so we won't get to them until the end. But, uh, you know, don't, don't miss the opportunity to get the questions in. We began last week looking at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And we saw that it is God's moral will. He says in verse 4, this is the will of God. Now, he's not talking about the sovereign will, but he's talking about his moral will of God. Your sanctification, your holiness. And then he further defines that by saying that here's what the holiness he's talking about, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, there's really no ambiguity here, okay? God wants believers to live morally pure lives. The Greek word used here for sexual immorality is, remember this from last week? Porneia, okay? Porneia. And porneia refers to any kind of sexual relation outside heterosexual marriage. I talked about this last week. This is just our culture. i got to put heterosexual in there because people are confused today about what marriage is. There is no marriage other than a heterosexual marriage, but our culture sees things differently. But God created marriage. It's between a man and a woman. All right? So this, is, this includes fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, bestiality, anything. Any sexual relation outside of marriage is porneia. Now, sexual sin, porneia, in Thessalonica, thinking about this this week, it might have been actually worse than it is in our culture. Now, you might find that hard to believe, but let me tell you two reasons I think this might be possible. First of all, in Thessalonica, they saw porneia as worship. Okay? I mean, pagan temples encouraged every kind of immoral sexual behavior. Prostitution, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, fornication, sodomy, and the sexual abuse of children. This was all part of worship. Okay? They were going to temples worshiping their God, they thought, involved in this kind of immorality. Now, second reason I think it might have been worse than our culture is there was absolutely no Christian influence in Thessalonica. There's no Christians there until Paul gets there and establishes a church. So they have no opposing interest, so to speak, okay? And so it just may be possible that the porneia there was worse than it is today in America. So their culture was a mess. Now, we ended last week by asking the question, how do we avoid porneia? How do we today in this culture avoid porneia? And I'll get to that in a minute. But first, let me address a problem within the preterist community. There are those within the sphere of preterism who are saying that sin ended in A.D. 70. And therefore, we don't sin today. And they would say that verses like 1 Thessalonians 4.3 does not apply to us. We don't need to avoid porneia. 
And let me just say that this is a destructive teaching that simply serves their immoral lifestyles. If you live an immoral lifestyle and you come up with a teaching that says it's okay, then hey, everything's right. Right? We're right back to Thessalonica and you're worshiping your God with, through your sin. All right? In AD 70, Christ came to put an end to the sin and the death, but only for those who are in him. Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Yeshua. The Greek word condemnation here is katakrama. It's in a passive formation in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence as an edict from the judge, but rather the punishment. So he's saying there is no punishment for those. Now this word katakrama is also used in Romans 5, talking about the punishment that comes from Adam's sin. It's imputed to all. This is condemnation. This is spiritual death. This is separation from God. So for those who trust in Christ, the punishment of Adam's sin, spiritual death, is removed. The sin of Adam brought death. And that's removed in Christ. We are no longer subject to spiritual death. In Christ, we have everlasting life. But beyond AD 70, men still sin. Hang on to this one. Christians still sin, okay? And I think too often a misunderstanding of what Scripture says has caused many believers to doubt or question their salvation. For example, the mistranslation of this verse in Romans, Romans 6, 7, the one who has died has been set free from sin. I think this can end up causing a Christian a lot of guilt and a lot of doubt because Paul has taught that all who have trusted Christ have died in union with Christ. And now, this verse says that the one who's died is freed from sin, but you still sin. You're not free from it. So what does that mean? Are you not a Christian after all? No, that's not what this is talking about. This verse is not teaching that Christians are free from sin. Not at all. What Paul says here is that the one who has died in Christ is justified from the sin, the sin of Adam. And the Greek word here translated freed is dakao, and it means justified. Although it is some preterists who are saying that sin is done away in 8070, we no longer sin, many believers live today as if this was the case. I mean, they would vehemently argue against their view, but in practice, they act like Christian conduct is totally insignificant. Their lives are full of sin. So is it important how we live? Does God care? So many believers act like if your theology is straight, you can live however you want. Does it matter how we live? Is sanctification for us today? Absolutely. Here's the deal, people. Yahweh is holy. Can we agree on that? And he asks his children to be like him. Be holy, for I am holy. We're to be like God. We've talked about that. Many scriptures tell us to imitate God, follow him, be like him. Okay. So let's see if we can answer the question that I asked last week. How do we, 21st century American Christians, avoid porneia? I think we avoid it the same way the Thessalonians would avoid it, and that's in following the teaching of the following verses. He lays out, he tells them that, you know, he wants them to live sanctified lives, to avoid porneia, and then he said that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Now, there's a big debate here over this verse. There's two main interpretations that are prominent on this verse. The interpretive problem centers around the verb 
katomai, which means either control or acquire. And the noun skuos, which can be translated body or wife. So, does this verse say that the Thessalonians should exercise control over their bodies? That'd be one translation. That's what we see in the ESV. Or does it say, in order to avoid sexual immorality, the single men should acquire wives? The most common view here is that the body refers to the person's body and then control means, you know, you control, you gain mastery over your body, you keep it in line. And this view sees Paul as exhorting not only the men, but men and women to control their bodies by restricting sexual activity to one's marriage partner. And this view is in line with what Paul teaches elsewhere. Okay, we can go all through the New Testament and back this up. Yes, we're to be, we have control over our bodies. We're to not live in the lust of the flesh. But some other translations put this verse this way. This is God's Word translation. It says, Each one of you should know that finding a husband or wife for yourself is to be done in holy and honorable way. That makes the verse sound a lot different, doesn't it? The Revised Standard Version says that each of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. So let's see if we can dissect this verse and see what it's actually saying, okay? And again, a lot of controversy over this verse. But he says, let each one of you. That indicates the demand is being applied to all the individuals in the church. Although, let me say this, I think it appears that Paul principally has in mind the male members of the congregation. I think porneia is more of a problem for men than women. Okay, I don't want to say too much. I'm really trying to be careful today because I'm trying not to get in too much trouble. But uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna, we're just going to go through this and let it fall where it may, all right? He says that you know, oida, it's the Greek, it means to knowledge, learn from the Word of God. You know, you know what the Bible says, you know how you're supposed to live, and you know how to control. Now, control here is kataomai. It's a present, middle, deponent, infinitive. It is literally to continually acquire or possess. Kataomai, in every occurrence in the New Testament, is used in the sense of acquire, purchase for oneself, or gain. That gives strong evidence to me of the second view. Uh, Matthew 10.9, Luke 18.12, Luke 21.19, Acts 1.18, Acts 8.20, Acts 22.28. All these use this same kataomai, and in none of these passages is this word used in a sense of get control or mastery over. Okay, That's not what it's talking about. The verb kataomai was frequently used of courtship and contracting a marriage. Acquiring a wife, basically. Now, a few texts exist in which the verb means to acquire a wife. Sirach 36.24 and Xenophon Symposium 2.10 use it in this way. And the Septuagint uses kataomai in Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Look at it, it says, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And acquire here is kataomai. 
It's using of getting a wife. All right. Katahomai is also used in Ruth 4:10. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought, I have bought to be my wife. So it's we're seeing this word katahomai is used in the Septuagint. It's used in extra biblical material. It's used in the scripture of acquiring. And because of this, translations make it take a wife for himself. Now, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, in their lexicon, chose acquire a wife as the most probable meaning, and the NET Bible and the RSV translates it accordingly. So there's a lot of, like I said, I think a lot of evidence behind the fact that this this word means more acquire a wife than gain control over your body. All right? And then it says his own body, the noun here translated body is skewos, which was understood as any, skewos is any type of instrument to use for basically anything. It could be furniture, it could be implements. It, often this is translated vessel, and metaphorically it could be used for the human body or the human person. The literature of the era also shows us that skewos could refer metaphorically to a man's wife. In 1 Peter 3.7, the wife is called a skewos. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel. The vessel there is skewos. In a number of references in rabbinic literature, the woman is referred to as a type of skewos, at times with sexual connotations that go along with it. Now, so do we have a biblical basis for using skewos as body and control in the sense of contracting a marriage? I think there's a lot of evidence for this translation. Clearly, and I, hopefully you can agree with me here, one way to avoid sexual impurity is through marriage, right? A proper understanding of sex and marriage how God has designed it. So you said you're having problems, find a wife. Find a wife. Now, to the Corinthians, Paul writes this. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But, <laughs> okay, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. So maybe he's using self-control here in the sense of you know having mastery over the body, controlling your body. But he says, if you're having problems, control. Here's the solution. Get married. Now then watch what he says. Because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The Greek word here for burn is purao. And it means to kindle, to be ignited, to glow, to be inflamed, with anger, grief, or lust. It is to have constant thoughts or desires for a sexual expression. The verb is in the, printed, the present infinitive, indicating a man or woman being constantly plagued by such unclean desires. How are they to fix this burning passion? Get married. Get married. Now, I think it's important here that we understand what he's saying here about it's better to marry than to burn. And he's got this idea that 
listen, sexual attraction can end up with this burning passion that, you know, I need to fulfill this, I need to deal with this. Now, Yarborough argues that the same exhortation appears at two points in Jewish literature. He brings up Tobit 4.12, which says, Beware, my son, of every kind of fornication, porneus, for of all marry a woman from among the descendants of your ancestors. So you're having problems with this. Tobit says, hey, why don't you get married? In the same way, the Testament of Levi says this, Be on guard against the spirit of promiscuity. Again, porneus. Therefore, take for yourself a wife while you're still young. So again, you're having problems with this. So this is Jewish literature. I think the Bible lays this out. I think this is clearly, here's the, here's the way you deal with porneia. Get married. That was traditional Jewish view. I think it was embraced by Paul. The way to avoid it, he says, get married. Now, some have observed that 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Paul presents what appears to be teaching very similar to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and 4. Let's compare these two. 1 Thessalonians 3 and 4, he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, porneia. That each one of you know how to acquire a wife in holiness and honor. So, okay, that if, the, if that's the view of it, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. But because of temptation to... Porneia, again, we, they're both talking about porneia, and here's the solution in Corinthians. Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages Christians to get married and express their sexuality in marriage instead of immorality. Now, let's examine this text in 1 Corinthians 7 just for a minute, because I think this is an important text on this subject, all right? He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not really a good translation. I mean, I, get, I think it puts the, the thought maybe where you want to have it, but it's, it's not a good translation. Young's has this. And concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now you say, okay, what does that mean? I can't put my hands on her, can't put my arm around her shoulder, can't hold her hand. no. That's not what it's talking about here, okay? The word here, the Greek word here is hoptomai, and it means to attach oneself to, to apply oneself to, and it directly relates to the sexual relationship within marriage. So to touch a woman is a euphemism for sexual relation, and that's how they got that in the ESV. They said, oh, it's a euphemism, but Paul uses it here for metonymy, for marriage. So that's what he's talking about. What Paul is saying contextually is this. Considering your present circumstances, considering all that's going on right now and the responsibilities within marriage, it is good not to marry. That's what he says. It's good. Okay, stay single. Then watch this. But, (laughs) there we've got that but again. Because of the temptation to porneia, sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, Each woman should have her own husband. All right, let me say here, this verse makes it clear that God does not approve of polygamy or homosexuality. All right? And we'll come back to polygamy here in a second, but I think you get that. It's it's kind of clear, right? The man, you have a wife. The wife, you have a man. That's, That's it. All right? But he says, but because of temptation to porneia, 
Paul's saying it's good not to marry because of the present situation, but because of porneia, every man should have his own wife, every woman have her own husband. Is this why a person should marry? Well, the Bible's saying it's a, it's a reason. It's not the only reason, but to avoid porneia is a reason for marriage. It's one of the reasons. Paul's not giving us here the doctrine of marriage. He's speaking of the danger of sexual immorality to those who are single. So what Paul's doing here is answering a specific problem that was given in a specific question in relation to a specific situation in Corinth at the time. The situation was this. Fornication, porneia, was rampant in the city as it was in many cities. Temptation was at every turn, and a man couldn't walk down the streets of Corinth without being propositioned. So what Paul is saying in this passage is that the real solution to the situation in Corinth is this. Let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. God has instituted marriage as the safeguard against the evil of Parnea. Marriage is not the lesser of two evils. It is God's ordained safeguard against the immorality that existed in Corinth. Verse 3 says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, the word conjugal rights here is the Greek word aphele, which according to Strong's means this, indebtedness, a sum owed, figuratively an obligation, that is conjugal duty, a debt, a due. Paul is saying, when you get married, you're obligated to meet the physical needs of your spouse. He's saying marriage is no place for celibacy, okay? Now, the general obligation that I am to pay to my spouse, that that I owe to him, her, I am to fulfill my duty as a spouse. Now, there is a specific obligation, and it's found in the following verses. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except, perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think this can be stated very simply. It is given to us in the first phrase, he says, do not deprive one another. And the word deprive here is the Greek word apostereo, which is a compound verb made up of apo, which means from, and stereo, that means to deprive or keep back. So the compound word means to deprive another of what belongs to him or her. The object is the body which belongs to the spouse in the marital union. So what Paul is saying here is that you do not have the right to deprive your marriage partner of their conjugal rights. And our society doesn't like stuff like this today, okay? But this is just what the Bible teaches, okay? If you don't like it, take it up with God. Here's the bottom line, people. You do not have the right to deprive your spouse of the rights within a physical relationship in marriage. It's not enough for us to say that sex is a a marital privilege, all right? It is that, but it's also a sacred responsibility. It is a debt that is owed in marriage. Where do you think Paul got this idea that sex and marriage is a sacred responsibility? 
Where do you get it from? He just made it up, right? So my wife's not giving me what I need. I'm gonna let me write some scripture and I'll deal with this. Now, where did Paul get everything he got when he taught? Okay, let's go back to Acts 22. Let's see. Paul will tell us Acts 26:22. Paul will tell us. He says, "To this day, I have had help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass." Paul is saying. Everything I'm preaching, everything I'm teaching comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. So I want you to understand this, Paul says. Any New Testament writer was getting their writer, their material from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's why that first three quarters of our Bible is so important. If you miss out on that, you're going to get lost in the New Testament. Because they're drawing their language, they're drawing their ideas from the first three quarters of the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. So I think this is what Paul might be getting his idea here from Exodus 21.10. If he takes another wife to himself, she shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. This is a really important text in Judaism. Okay, Here we're told that food, clothing, and by clothing it includes shelter. Not just, here's a shirt, be happy, wife. No, you got to give shelter for her, okay? For the, <clears throat> and these are obligations, and mar- her marital rights, these are obligations that a man has to his wife. And the text goes on to say, and if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So basically, what he's saying here, she is free from that marriage. Even though she came as a slave, she's absolutely free and there's nothing to pay. In other words, what are you saying here? These are legitimate grounds for divorce. Food, clothing and shelter, marital rights. And you understand I'm focusing on marital rights right now, okay? This goes both ways. A man could say that the woman, well, she's not cooking the food. She's not taking care of the house. She's not reciprocating the marital rights. So here we have three grounds for divorce, to which the Lord added a fourth. What did the Lord have to say about this? Matthew 19.9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits adultery. So biblically, you can only get divorced for these four things, which are stipulated in Scripture. Porneia. Lack of food, lack of clothing or shelter, and lack of conjugal rights. Now, David Instone Brewer, in his book on marriage and divorce, writes this. In the first century, marriage contracts that we have found at Masada and in the Judean caves along with the Dead Sea Scrolls and things, in every marriage certificate which this part of it is preserved, you find this verse being quoted. And it says you must not diminish her food, her clothing, her marital rights. In other words, when when there was a marriage and the marriage contract, this was written out, the woman clung to this. So if she needed a divorce, she had it right there. This is not being met. It was written into every piece of paper that every Jewish bride owned and kept safe. They guarded this because this was the contract they had. So Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians, and I believe to us, Conjugal rights in marriage are a sacred responsibility. It is a debt that we owe. 
And Paul is saying one of the ways to avoid porneia is to get married. So, if one of the ways to avoid porneia is to get married, what happens if you get married and your spouse won't have sex with you? You have grounds for divorce. Because that's a marriage, that's one of the biblical reasons for getting married. Now listen, I think we all understand this. God made men and women very different. I don't quite understand it. It seems mean at times, okay? (laughs) But let me tell you, men's sex drive is usually much stronger than women. Now there's exceptions to every rule, okay? But men's sex drive is much stronger. And because of this, the woman has to understand that this is a sacred duty in, in marriage. It's not, you know, this guy... I mean, I think if women are not educated, this, this guy's just a pervert. The guy wants to have sex every time I turn around, you know. Well, that's a men's thinking. And men are sight-driven. And when they see things, they're, you know, they get turned on by what they see. And so in a marriage, the woman is fulfilling the needs of her husband so he doesn't have to think about that or doesn't have to go somewhere else. Now, I know I'm getting delicate. <laughs> I know I'm on delicate ground here, people, Okay. But I'm trying to stay biblical here. Women, just to show you, if I can at all, the power of sexual attraction that women have to men. And I mean, there's just a thing that men are just, you know, driven by this. Let me show you something. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. What is happening here, people? Well, we've been over these verses, but here's what's happening. Divine beings from God's heavenly host, also called watchers by Daniel. Gods, okay, gods, you got that, ladies? Gods left heaven, why? For attractive women. Okay? These gods married women of the human race, violating the heavenly earthly division that Yahweh had established. And because of this, Yahweh punished them. Yahweh judged them. Judges 1, 6-7 through says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, which was heaven, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as now he's comparing this. Okay, we're talking about angels. We're talking about they left their state. And then he connects it with Sodom and Gomorrah, which is sexual sin. And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in porneia and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. People, these angels left heaven and came to earth because of beautiful women. And because of this, they're judged. I think this is a powerful example of the power that the female sex has on men. They're in the presence of God in heaven and they leave. They know it's a violation. They come down to be with these women. Let me show you another text. 1 Corinthians 11.10 This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? 
Well, here's the deal back in the day, okay? A woman's hair, a woman's long hair, was a symbol of her sexuality. And so they were to cover their hair to keep the angels from being tempted. Not just men of the day, but to keep the angels from being tempted. This is a real concern for Paul because of incidents like Genesis 6, where the the gods left heaven. Today, I think if Paul was writing to us, he would say, Women, dress modestly. Don't make men burn with passion. Don't try to flaunt what you got. Cover it up. It's for your husband. It's not for anybody else. Again, to illustrate, if I can, how big an issue this is, the pornography industry in the United States generates annually $12 billion. $12 billion. How are they making all this money? Because they know what men want. They know men burn with passion. They know men want to see women. So that, hey, $12 billion, you know, that's larger than the combined annual revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS. That's just the United States. The pornography industry worldwide, $97 billion. I read this from uh, these statistics from provenmen.org. They said this. This is amazing to me that you got people to admit this. But it says this. 21% of Christian men and 2% of Christian women, I'm surprised that number's that high, (laughs) say that they think that they might be addicted to pornography. 21% of Christians. People, pornography is a huge problem in our country, not just for non-saved people, for saved people. People in the church, it's like I said, we talked about last week, it's just too easy. Anybody with internet connection can look at all the porn they want, okay? You can look at anything you want for free, but yet it's a $97 billion industry because people want more and more and more, so they're making money on this, okay? So, again, this is why he says get married. And this is why, you know, I know so many Christian couples who basically they're married and that's, they live together and there's no relationship there. There's no love, there's no passion, there's nothing. They're just getting along. That's not how it's supposed to be. Okay? But women, men need certain things and that's your responsibility. God-given responsibility. And if women understood this and if men would do their responsibility to love their wives, their wives are probably more willing to reciprocate there. All right, before I get in too much trouble, let me move on. <clears throat> now, something different this week. I, I, had, I heard from three different of our people from our extended Berean family. They contacted me this week, <laughs> this past week, and they said, are you going to deal with this in the following message? I've never had that happen before, but three of them. Hey, since you're talking about marriage, are you going to say this? Or are you going to say, and I'm like, I wasn't planning on it. Okay, but okay, let's, let's look at some of these things. One of the questions was about polygamy. Okay? I hadn't planned on talking about polygamy in this message, but since he brought it up, let's do that, okay? And you're like, how do you connect this with polygamy? Well, maybe someone's thinking, hey, marriage is a solution to pornea. Maybe if I had several wives, it'd be even better. <laughs> maybe. I mean, Solomon, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
If he spent every night with one of these women, it would be over three years before he saw you again. Okay, remember me? Uh, vaguely, you know, yeah, one of my wives. Okay, so, <laughs> and I know, I know people who are use, teaching today that, hey, uh, polygamy is okay today. Polygamy is okay, it's not a problem with it. I, I know several people try to defend this. So is it? Well, I don't think so. First of all, I think it's dumb, okay? You don't need two wives, you're just asking for trouble, okay? you got all you can do to take care of one, all right? But Paul said that each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband, right? As I said earlier, this makes it clear that God doesn't approve of either polygamy or homosexual. You, if you're a woman, you have a man. If you're a man, you have a woman. That's it. I want to look at what, what Yeshua had to say about polygamy in response to the Pharisees' question on divorce. And we've got to get in a little bit into the culture because the culture really helps us understand his argument here. But in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, it says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, when you look at exactly that same phrase here, male and female, the Jews use this phrase. Let me back up here. Yeshua's argument here fits in with what was being taught at Qumran at the day. Qumran in the Damascus document, a Qumran was a group that separated themselves. They went out in the desert, they lived in the caves, and they waited for the Messiah. And they were basically a godly group. They had a lot of documents out there. But they had the thing called the Damascus document. And you got a series of proof texts that show they were teaching that polygamy was wrong. They thought that you should only have one wife. That's interesting, right? And they supported this with the idea that Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve got married, and it says male and female, right? And when you look at exactly that same phrase later in the story of the flood, it says they went into the ark two by two, male and female. So therefore, male and female only two involved. One man, one wife. Not lots of wives. And Yeshua quotes here their proof text about male and female in these verses in Matthew 19. That's why he says to them, male and female, they oh yeah, that's from the Damascus document. They know what's going on here. He's supporting, or he's supporting their view that polygamy is wrong. Well, Yeshua also uses an argument that's used by the Diaspora Jews and all the translations of the Tanakh from Hebrew, all right, whether it be into Syriac or into the Old Greek or the early ones into the Latin, all the old translations, they all added a word to the Genesis quote. So when Yeshua quotes, and the two shall become one, he added a word to the text. Now, the Genesis text says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Yeshua said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Yeshua's quoting the text, and he adds a word. What word did he add here? Two. Two isn't in any of the Hebrew manuscripts. But if you're familiar with New Testament, you know a lot of times they'll quote 
things and they'll change the wording because they're actually helping interpret. They're, they're giving a divine inspiration here, all right? Yeshua adds the word to, so you'll understand that marriage is between one man and one woman. Two become one. It doesn't become three. It doesn't become four. Marriage is between one male and one female. I think that should be clear enough from the text. So Yeshua was fully on board with the other Jews who were saying that there shouldn't be polygamy. It's from man and a woman. Get married. This is how it was from the beginning. All right? And Yeshua makes it clear that it was that way from the beginning by adding the word to when he quotes the Genesis text. All right, let's get back to our text. So he says that each one of you should know how to acquire a wife in holiness and honor. So he's saying a man's decision to marry somebody shouldn't be just controlled by lust. I'm, I'm having a hard time with lust. Let's just get married. No, he says it, you need to consider her as a Christian sister. Honor here is time, which means valuing, a price paid or received. Then esteem, precious, respect. Marriage is to be entered and maintained in an atmosphere of respect for a special and holy creation. You know that marriage is supposed to be a picture for the world to see of God? You know, when they see a married couple, they said, look at him, look at how much he loves her. That's how God loves the church. And when they see the woman and say, look how that woman submits to that man. That's how the church is to submit to God. It's a picture, Ephesians 5. That's what marriage is all about. And let me just add here that to acquire a wife in holiness and honor would be to follow the biblical mandate that you marry a believer. Now, this is another question I got to ask. Are you going to mention the fact that they should only marry believers? Again, I wasn't, but I can. Okay. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Would you think marriage is a yoke? Absolutely. I mean, not in a bad way, but you're joining with somebody. You're For life, you're committing to somebody else. You don't want to do that with an unbeliever. He says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? I mean, to marry an unbeliever, you must not care much about your relationship with the Lord because there's, what do you talk about in that marriage? How do you, your values would be, everything would be so drastically different. You marry a believer so you're on the same page. This is a basic principle of God's plan for marriage. Believing people, marry believing people. To marry an unbeliever, I think, is a sin. All right? 1 Corinthians 7.39 A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. You say, oh Lord, yep. That's why I make sure you marry, you know, you know someone you're getting married to. All right? But if her husband dies, she's free to remarry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So Paul's telling the widow two things. First of all, they're free to remarry. She's at liberty to be married to whoever she wishes. But one restriction, it's got to be another Christian. Christians are only to marry another believer. Which implies you should only date believers. You know the purpose of dating? Let's find a wife. <laughs> That's the purpose of dating. I'm looking for a wife. I'm dating people. So why would you date an unbeliever? And this missionary dating thing is not a good idea. Okay? 
Missionary dating is not, because if the guy likes you or the girl likes you and you're a Christian, well, I'll go along with whatever you're saying because I like you, you know? And then you, later you get married and you find out, I don't really care about that God thing at all. I just kind of wanted you. So it's not a good idea, you know? Stick to your own sex when you're evangelizing, I think, because there's complications when you, get in, when you get in there like that, okay? Let's go on in our text. <clears throat> whatever the true interpretation of this verse is, okay? whether it's control or acquire a wife. And again, the Scripture will back up both views completely. You can be assured that the Thessalonians knew what Paul was talking about. Okay, He'd been there. He talked to them already about this. He already mentions that. Uh, he's reminding them what he already taught them. So they knew what he was talking about. They were clear on it. All right, verse 5. <clears throat> not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This plainly means that the sexual conduct of the Christian should be different from the prevailing permissiveness of the day. Believers shouldn't be living like those who don't know God. That we're called to be separate people. We're not to be like them. Not in the passions of lust. <clears throat> Paul said to the Roman believers in Romans 13, Put on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on here as in duo, which is an aorist imperative middle. And an aorist imperative calls for a specific, definite, decisive choice. Do this now. Do it at once. Do it for all time. The middle voice indicates the subject performs the action on himself or herself. In other words, your believer are to do this. Put him on. So believers are called for once in all time to put on Christ. And the idea is like put on like a garment or to act the part of. Play the part of Yeshua. Paul's saying become like Yeshua. Act like Him. Put on Christ when you get up in the morning. Make Him a part of everything you do in your day. Make no provision for the flesh. As believers, we're not to make these provisions. People, this means... Oh, let me put it this way. Do you think you could look at pornography and follow this verse? Don't make any provision for the flesh. And you're looking at pornography. That's making every provision for the flesh. Okay? And it's destructive. I mean, if you want to go into some of the research, pornography literally damages the mind. There's a lot of studies out there showing the damage it literally does to your thinking. Okay? But... If you're making no provision for the flesh, this means you've got to be careful what you look at. You've got to be careful where you go. You've got to be careful what you listen to. Be careful who your friends are because you're not to make provision for the flesh. You're to guard that. He says, don't be like the Gentiles who don't, do not know God. And Gentiles here is literally the nations. And he's not comparing here Jew to Gentile. He's just saying like the non-Christians live. Don't do like that. Now some have suggested that Paul changes his theme at this point. And from verse 6 on, he, he's going in a different direction. He addresses the problem of commercial exploitation of other members in the church. Uh, I don't think that's it at all. I think he's staying on the subject of porneia. He's continuing that. In verse 6, he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger. And all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. The word transgress here means to go beyond the bounds. The word wrong here is pleonectheo, and it means to take advantage of. It's to take advantage of people by wrongly taking something 
from them through deceptive means. Sexual relationships are reserved only for marriage. So that such relationships outside the marriage entail taking sexual possessions reserved for another. The adulterer defrauds his spouse. He defrauds his children. The fornicator defrauds his future mate and children. And both defraud the illicit partner. And this has the definite article and therefore refers to verses 3 to 5 and sexual purity. In this matter, the matter of sexual purity, don't defraud one another. Don't transgress. Don't go over the bounds and do damage to another believer. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Now, this is the first of four reasons for sexual purity that he lists in these verses. The first is God's the avenger, all right? Trust that God's going to punish porneia. Avenger here is from the Greek word ekdechaos, and it means one who carries out a legal sentence. And the Lord here is referring to Christ, Yeshua. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in this text in Romans 13. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's a servant of God, the avenger, ekdechas, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I don't think this verse in Romans 13, I don't think Romans 13 is dealing with civil government. That's how most people translate. The government's there, they got the sword, they're doing good. No, I don't think that has anything to do with this. This is talking about the leaders in the synagogue. Okay, this is a Jew-Gentile thing. Rome had given the synagogue the power of the sword. They had authority to punish those who violated their laws. And the synagogue was the legal center of the Jewish community and the place where punishment was meted out to those who violated its laws. Remember, all the early Christians, they met in the synagogue still. All right? Paul himself had represented such a ruling authority. He brandished the sword. Remember, he was going around putting Christians to death. After his conversion on Damascus Road, he became a recipient of the judgment from the synagogue. I think the avenger here is referring to what was called at the time the servant of the synagogue. He was the bearer of the sword of justice. That is, he could inflict capital punishment. Rome had given him this privilege. So the Lord carries out a legal sentence, he says, against those who commit porneia. People, I wish we could understand this. And again, I think probably one of the legal sentences is the damage that porneia can do to the mind. But you talk about sexual sin, you talk about damage to marriage, you talk about on and on and on the damage that porneia does. God's word speaks out strongly against porneia because it destroys marriages. And marriage is a divine institution. God instituted it. He delineated its purpose or its design. He has declared its permanence and he declares that it should be held in honor. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, I believe that the ESV has translated this correctly because the construction here should be treated as hortatory, which means exhorting or advising, rather than declaratory. The King James says this, marriage is honorable among all. That's not what he's saying. He says, let marriage be held in honor. Okay? This is an exhortation. Marriage is honorable among all. It's an imperative. It fits better with the context, which is a sequence of exhortations. 
He says, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So, again, the hortatory sense provides a better antecedent to the ensuing warning here. Fornicators are going to be judged. Honor here is the Greek tamas. It means to held as a great price, esteemed, especially. Let marriage be held in honor. In other words, we honor the marriage so we don't violate it. We don't go outside it. We don't do damage to it. We do all we can do to protect marriage. In the New Testament, nearly every writer discusses marriage because a stable marriage is a building block to the structure of society. And that's why our society is working so hard to destroy marriages. Because if you destroy marriages, you destroy the society. There's a present decay of the family through immorality that threatens the stability of this nation. In case you think I might be exaggerating the severity of this, let me just tell you that historian Arnold Tonby's research indicated that of history's 21 greatest civilizations, 19 perished from internal moral corruption, not external enemies. They just collapsed because of the sin in it. That's what happened to the Roman Empire. They just collapsed because of the sin. Our nation is in trouble because marriage is in trouble. We're not holding it in honor. Why do I say that the church's immorality threatens the nations? Well, at the end of Hebrews 13.4, he tells us, but because fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornicators, pornos, the person who indulges in sexual relationships outside of marriage, both homosexual and heterosexual. Adulterous here is from moikos. It means those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows. Believers, God's going to judge those who dishonor marriage. And there are many passages in Scripture that speak of God's judgment. I would just encourage you, you know, young men should be made to memorize Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 talks about the dangers of sexual sin. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? What's the answer to that? No. Okay? It's warning. You can't, you, in other words, he's saying you're not going to do this and get away with it. Okay? The Lord's going to punish people for these sins. The Lord, again, is the Lord Yeshua in His judicial capacity who is called the Avenger here, one who deals with this evil, executing judgment. And, you know, we see this in David's sin with Bathsheba. You know, David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he was involved in sin. He paid an awful price for that, though. You know, if you think David got away with something, you're not familiar with the Scriptures, okay? Because he was told, out of your family, fourfold. And man, you know, his son rapes his daughter, his son kills his other son, it's just on and on. He just has a terrible situation because of his sin. God judged him. He dealt with David because of that. He says, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Again, he's telling them, I taught you this when I was there. You know this stuff, I just want to warn you, okay? Because this is really important stuff. And in verse 7 he says, God has not called us to impurity but holiness. This is the second reason why Christians should be sexually pure. Because of our calling. We've been called by God to be His children. And because He is holy, we're called to be holy. That's what this is all about. It's not a call to impurity, it's a call to holiness. Impurity here is the opposite of sanctification or holiness. The word here is a katharsia, uncleanliness, filthiness, impurity. It literally meant refuge and was used of the contents of graves. 
From this it came to be used of sexual sins. <clears throat> so, in verse 8 he says, Therefore whoever discredits this, or disregards this, disregards not man but God. This is the third reason for sexual purity. To reject God's call to sexual purity is not rejecting man. You are rejecting God himself. Paul's not coming up with this stuff. God has given you this stuff. So you reject these, it amounted to rejecting God, not Paul. Unless someone think this standard is impossibly high, Paul reminded his readers that God gives us the Holy Spirit. And this is the fourth reason for sexual purity. This is a present active participle. This refers to the indwelling of the Spirit as both an initial and an ongoing experience. We've got the Spirit of God living in us, believers. Do we want to join Him in Pornea? We've been given the Holy Spirit. He empowers us as we trust in Him, as we walk in Him. The trusting Christian can overcome this sexual sin, even in the midst of the environment we live in today that bombards us with this. We can overcome it. And here's the key, people, to living a holy life. The key to holy living is learning to walk in the Spirit. And the key to walking in the Spirit is being controlled by the Spirit. And the key to being controlled or filled by the Spirit, Colossians 3.16, is letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, be controlled by the Spirit. Colossians 3.16, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. The parallel texts are both identical. So, the Word dwelling in you, the Spirit controls you. The Spirit can't control a believer who does not have the Word in them. That's why we read it over and over and over. So we come to give the Holy Spirit guidelines to direct us. And when we go to do wrong, He reminds us, hey, wait a minute, that's not in line with the Word of God. And as the Word of God saturates your life, then the Spirit controls you and you can walk in the power of the Spirit. God hasn't called us to do things that are un we're unable to do, we're incapable of doing. He's given us the power. It's a matter of we decide to walk in that power and trust Him daily in every step of the... And again, make no provision for the flesh. You know, if the TV's a problem, deal with it, get rid of it. I got a friend, a good friend, who's a lover of God. And whenever he travels, he'll stay in a hotel. He'll tell the hotel, take the TV out of the room. And they're like, you lost your mind. No, take it out of the room. I won't want the room. So whenever he goes to a hotel, he does, he's not worried about being tempted to watch something he shouldn't watch. He can't. He avoids his tempt. That's what the Bible says. Flee fornication. Get away from that stuff. Protect yourself. And, you know, I mean, people laugh at that. Oh, it's extreme. Guess what? doesn't have a problem because he protects himself. That's so important, people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, a lot of different areas. Lord, I pray that people would not accept what I'm saying as true. They wouldn't reject it as false, but they would study this out themselves. Look at the word, examine the word. Is this what the Word says, Lord? Father, I pray by Your Spirit You would help us, convict us, guide us. May we be an encouragement and support to one another that we would walk in holiness, that we would bring honor to You. Thank You, Father, for Your grace in our lives. Amen. Okay.
<laughs> Any questions this morning? Okay, a question uh, comes from Gary. How do the multiple wives of Isaac and Jacob and other patriarchs fit in with this wife principle? I think the Bible's clear in Genesis. God made it a man and a woman to start with. Okay, that was a concession of God that he allowed these men. Why? I don't know. I don't understand it. But it was a concession that God made. When we get to the New Testament, he makes it very clear. One of the qualifications of an elder is what? He has to be the husband of one wife. Okay? And it doesn't mean he can't have been divorced. Oh, you had a wife, now you have another. No, that's not what it's talking about. The, the literal Greek there is a man totally devoted to the one woman in his life. That's what it's about. And again, I think the Lord made it very clear in his teaching that, you know, there's a lot of things they did, you know, in the Hebrew culture that they weren't right. Kathy, someone says they love your necklace. I'm guessing that was a woman that said that. Because a guy wouldn't even have noticed it. Any questions here? <clears throat> I guess there's, there's not a lot of questions, so I guess you got what I'm saying then, right? Everybody, everybody understands it? I thought I'd get more questions this morning. Yes? Um, you were saying in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the first verse is good for a man not to touch a woman because of what they were dealing with at the time. Could you just... Well, Paul talks about that earlier in the letters. They wrote and asked some questions, and he was saying because of the, 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 they were in a transition period, and he says, listen, right now it's a difficult time, so it's good if you can't marry. If you can stay single as I am, and Paul went over this to the Corinthians, all right, you can stay as me, that's good, but if you can't, then it's okay to marry, because it's better to marry than to burn. But they were under special circumstances at the time going through an evolution there in the transition, and there was, you know, judgment coming, so he's given that option. But, again, the thing was, if you can't control it, go ahead and marry. It's not wrong to marry. Paul was single, and he said, you know, hey, if you can be like me, that's good. Not everybody can be like him. The Bible talks about some people being eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Some people can handle being single. Others can't. But I just, you know, I mean, I never really understood, I guess, till this week how strongly the Bible says this is a protection against porneia. Get married. Do you think, uh, sorry, can I you, No, you're right, go ahead. Um, do you think, uh, I was thinking about this earlier, so it's, it's funny that you brought up that, that verse, but uh, do you think one of the reasons may be because they were anticipating the Lord's return so soon that he was... I definitely think that's part of it. Yes, I definitely think that's part of it. That's what I mean by the transition period. They're, they were going through turmoil there in the transition. The Lord's coming, okay, all this judgment's going to come down, all right? So if you can do without, then you don't have to worry about having a wife and kids to take care of. That's fine. But if you can't, you know, Paul talks about because the married man has thoughts about his wife, and the married woman's thinking about her husband instead of, you know, dwelling on the Lord and His service. So if you can do it, do it. But I don't think it's, you know, I think it's a gift, obviously, that God gives some people because some people cannot handle that, okay? But in our culture today, we've pushed marriage so far back. You know, people are not getting married. Now, they're in their 40s. And I'm like, you know, you're going through a terrible time. Teenagers are burning with hormones and passions. They're like, no, don't get married. 
Yeah, just suffer. You know, no, I, I think it's stupid. I think long engagements are stupid. If you made up your mind, get married, get it over with. Don't drag this out. Don't put yourself under the temptation. You know, why would you do that to yourself? You know, you say, well, I want to make sure it's the right. How are you going to make sure? Is there some way you can find out for sure? People change over time. You know that? Okay, I'm getting some questions here. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Regarding polygamy in the First Corinthians 7 address, I don't see a direct correlation to that referring to the husband and wife relationship, but I don't see that it says only one wife. First Timothy 2 and Titus address deacons, elders, overseers who have only one wife, but they had the responsibility for the family of faith, widows and orphans, so forth. They would have only one wife. I think the, here's the whole thing. Elders were to live in a certain way because they're to be examples to the flock. So this is for the, what he told elders is just as responsible for the rest of the flock is supposed to live this way. But they're to be the examples to the flock. So I, he says, if polygamy is wrong, why is there so much directness in the Tanakh regarding multiple wives? Once again, I recall the only directives for single wives in the New Testament would be those. Uh, well, I, I made an argument. If you don't buy it, okay. I, you know, I can't say anything more. You know, understanding the culture and understanding the, the Jews of that day and what they felt against polygamy and the Lord using those examples. Here's the thing. God told kings it was wrong to multiply horses or wives. What did Solomon do? What happened to Solomon? You know, the Bible calls Solomon the wisest man in the world. What happened to this idiot? His wives drew his heart away from God. His wives did that. He's offering sacrifices to these other gods. He's offering sacrifices to Moloch, which is child sacrifice. There's all kinds of issues with polygamy. Now listen, if you want to marry more than one wife... That's your business, okay? I just think it's wrong. I don't, I don't want anybody else. I want my affection, my devotion singled out to the one woman that God has given to me, okay? And you start dividing that in the family, you talk about jealousy, you talk about factions, you talk about look out, okay? Yes? Just a, I guess a follow-up to that question. Do you think one of, maybe one of the reasons why there's, like that person was saying, there's so many... Uh, references to polygamy like oh if you if you do marry them you know you have to do it this way for the same reason that jesus said uh moses gave you the command to divorce right it was it was sort of for the hardness of your heart you know yeah it wasn't so from the beginning because they say can we get divorced for every cause not every cause no she burns a biscuit you can't get rid of her because of that we laid out the causes in there you know and again i i know that the i know the old testament is it, the old testament is full of this polygamous marriages you know but it, it again it wasn't the intention of god from the beginning and i don't think it's still his attention uh i'm trying to think of which one is are they both from today what is the date today <laughs> okay that must be this one so <laughs> So if you're a Christian and you have lived with a man for four years unmarried, but left that relationship, will the Lord leave you and will you not be able to keep walking with the Lord? Um, so if you're 
a Christian and you live with a man for four years, well, that was four years of sin if you're unmarried. But you left that relationship, will the Lord leave you? The Lord will, if you're a Christian, the Lord will never leave you. He judges sin, but if you're a believer, you're always a believer. You're part of the family. And here's the thing. When you sin, you confess your sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives. Thank God He forgives, okay? And just you recognizing, you know, we talked about that this morning. You know, we were reading in, uh, what, were, what text were we reading this morning? It was Second Chronicles let me see if I can got, let me see if I got it here. Second Chronicles twelve, King Rehoboam. He just God makes him king. Okay, he's he's Solomon's son, he's king. It says when Rehoboam had established his sovereignty and royal power, <clears throat> he abandoned the law of the Lord, he and all Israel with him. So he's in this great place. Forget about God, I'm gonna go my own way. So God brings an army against Israel, Egypt. Okay, we'll we'll take care of you. He says, God says this, you have abandoned me. Therefore, I have abandoned you to Shishak, the Egyptian king. And it says, so the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves. <laughs> and, and they said, Yahweh is righteous. When Yahweh saw that he had humbled himself and Yahweh's message came to Shemaiah, they have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but will grant them a little deliverance. People, when you humble yourself before the Lord, God gives you grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So yeah, if you've been in sin, ask for forgiveness, turn from that sin. God is gracious. Doesn't mean you're not going to get chastised for that. You're not going to get disciplined because of it. But you might not be, because God might say, hey, I'm going to forgive him and we'll go on. You know. So God, please understand, God is gracious. Great. And if he wasn't, we would all be in some serious, serious trouble, folks. All right, hang on. Whoa, now the questions are coming in like crazy. What about those who have long been married to unbelievers? Okay, you made a mistake. You go on. You don't say, well, I've got to get rid of you. No. You pray for them. You encourage them. You live with the consequence of what has happened. Okay? Now, when I asked Kathy to marry me, I did it because I became a Christian. And I'm like, okay, we've got to get married. All right? She was an unbeliever, because I had just become a believer. And I didn't, hadn't got to 1 Corinthians yet, so I didn't know I was supposed to marry an unbeliever. Okay, I'm reading my Bible, but I hadn't got that far. So what I did is when I went to boot camp, we got married. I married an unbeliever. I didn't know any better. Huh? No, we got married, and then I, then I, we got married, sorry. We got married, she was an unbeliever, I was a believer, I was just a new believer. Like I said, hadn't got to Corinthians, didn't know that, so... When I went to boot camp, I made her promise me that she would read her Bible every day. It's about halfway through boot camp. She writes me a letter and says, I trusted the Lord today. And I was like, you know, I mean, God is just gracious. You know, he's just gracious to people. And so 46 years later, it's still working out. You know, I don't know about you, but it's working out for me. How is repentant sin in this area judged by God? I don't know. That's totally up to God. Maybe he's not judged. Maybe because you repented, God said, I'm giving him grace. I don't have to, you know. Maybe some other way. I don't know. You know, God deals with sin, okay? The thing is, I think when you fear God, it's not just worrying about what he's going to do to you. It's the idea of hurting your father, you know? 
It's the idea. And I, I'll tell you what, that came in so clear to me. When I was in the military, we got sent to an Air Force base. I'm like, oh, brother, you know. And <laughs> two men rooms, you know, all this fancy food and everything. But I, I go in this room and I'm in there with an Air Force guy and he's not in there, but he's got pornography laying all over the place. You know, so I'm like, and here's, here's my thinking. I wonder if it's as bad as when I used to look at it. You know, so that's my excuse. So I'm over there, and I'm kind of standing at a distance like I'm afraid, you know, and I'm kind of leafing through this magazine, like, you know, looking at the pictures. And then I just stopped, and I got on my knees, and I just started crying. I'm like, God, I don't need this. You're my Father. You provided everything for me. And I just, I wasn't afraid that God was going to judge me. I was sad because I felt like I hurt my Father. It was more that, you know, because I call him father, I, I didn't want to be a disappointment to him. So that was more the motivation there. Yeah, somebody quotes here, uh, he must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire large amounts of silver, gold. Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen. Yes, I, I, I agree. Solomon's heart turned away. Of course, he overdid it. What about divorce and remarriage? Again, I think there's grounds for divorce. And if you have grounds for divorce, I think you can get divorced. And here's the thing that I guess most people would probably disagree with me on. I agree. I, I think that if you're not having sex in your marriage, that's a grounds for divorce. I, I'm sorry. I just do. Because if the Bible says this is why, you know, to avoid pornea, get married, and you're married, and I'm not, that's worse than being single. Worse. You're living with a woman, and you, I can't have sex with you. What? That's just totally jacked up, man, okay? Someone says, repeat the audience question so we can hear them. Sorry about that. I always forget to do that. Anthony? But the person that they left was still alive. That he said something about if the person died, if he died, so then it's okay for her to remarry again. Suppose the person, and so just somebody got married five times, and the person they married five times, all those people are still alive. They all died. Oh, so still they're alive. all alive, still okay. alive. So yeah. is that person is still? Would be judged? A person would be judged for that? Was that still sin? Again, again, you, you could have ten this divorces. Is, if they're biblical divorces, one thing. Again. Oh, he, he's asking me if you had five wives, <laughs> you, di- you divorced them all, You're one at a time, but you divorced them all, then wh- what is God going to hold you responsible? I don't know what, you know, again, if, if they're still alive, you know, again, that, that is up to God. And the thing is, if you repented and if you turned from that, I mean, people, we do a lot of dumb things, you know, I'll tell you this very clearly. I think today the church has made divorce the unpardonable sin. And I think that's so wrong. So wrong. Okay? It's not the unpardonable sin. Okay? It's a sin like any other sin. Guess what? You can be forgiven for your sins. Okay? And there's biblical divorces that you can get. All right? So, but again, no matter if your divorce is biblical or non-biblical, if you're a Christian, you ask for God's forgiveness, you repent, you go on. You know? Will there be consequences? Sure. You got other families, other kids, other, you know all these different connections, it, it can get crazy, you know. It really can get. So there's a lot of complications and stuff like that. Yes? Uh, could you just talk a little bit about uh, verse 11? 
I can't talk a little bit about anything. (laughs) 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 Verse 11 of what? First Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Yeah, let me bring it up. To, all right, yeah, First Thessalonians 4.11, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands. That's what you're talking about? Yeah, that'll be coming up in a couple of weeks. Okay, so I'm working, I'm working through there. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. But, you know, Paul's talking about sexual sin. Then he starts talking about love. You know, you guys need to love one another. And you're taught, don't think they're separate, okay? Because if, if you love somebody, another brother or sister, you won't commit sexual sin with them, okay? You won't defraud them, as he said in the text we're looking at right now. So, yeah, I can't jump ahead that far. <laughs> Anybody else? We done? Um, I know that in the LGBTQ stuff, they have somebody or some people who say that they are not like attracted to anybody. Like they call themselves asexual, so they don't they're not attracted to anybody physically, and they don't have any. They say they don't have any sex drive. Okay. So if some if two of those people get into a marriage, should they just not have gotten into a marriage? Because you said that. You believe that if somebody isn't having sex when they're in a marriage, they should just get divorced because that's... No, you shouldn't enter a marriage if, first of all, yeah, if you're not attracted to somebody, I don't know why you'd want to marry them in the first place, okay? Uh, Here's the thing, people, and and I've I've got messages out on this, but let me just make this clear. I think, okay, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's it. There's no other options there. I think for a person to be sexually attracted to the same sex... There's something wrong with that person. Okay, now, I disagree with probably the majority of the church on this because, you know, the majority of the church will say, well, they weren't born that way. That was a choice. I disagree with that. I think they were born that way. Okay, I have certain desires, certain likes. There's certain things I won't do. I don't like that. Why don't you like that? I don't know. I just don't. I'm not attracted to men at all. Okay, why? I'm not. It's repulsive to me. Okay, I'm attracted to women, not men. Okay? Yeah, well then. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Singular. Okay? So I think that when someone is attracted to the same sex, something is broken. Now, listen. People are born with defects. Physical defects. Mental defects. I think it's a defect. I think something's wrong. But here's the thing, and I've dealt with many homosexuals. I dealt with a Christian man who had desires for the same sex. He never acted on that, okay? And so we communicated back and forth. I'm like, okay, there's something broken if you like men, but if you're not involved, that's not sin. You can't help what your desires are, people. You just cannot. You know, you like certain foods. You don't like certain things. You like certain cars. Why do you like this car, not that? I don't know. It's just a desire I have. But as long as your desires aren't sin, it's okay. But when your desires become sin, you know, I try to use this illustration. Most men left to themselves would be adulterers. We like looking at women, okay? But we say, no, I married. I got to stick with one now, okay? 
That's just how it is. So they say, well, they're born that way, so they should act on it. No, not if it's sin. Not if you want God's blessing. And you just, you know, either stay celibate or pray that God would fix you. And God can do that. And there's many people in that movement that have come out of that. And let me just say that among the homosexual community, I read something this week that a, a coroner said, I can tell you when a murder was committed by a homosexual just by looking at him. They say because it is so violent, the body is so you know mutilated that I can tell instantly it was a homosexual marriage. And there's a high rate of you know suicide among homosexuals. Same thing in the transgender community. High rate of suicide because these things are not right. And people will say, well, it's because society puts... No, God has given us the the guidebook of what we're to live by, how we're to live, and we're going by that. So, you know, we can't go by our society. Our society today is so messed up. Everything's okay. Oh, thanks. It's okay, Paul. All right. Um, we're going we're gonna to end it here. We've been long enough, okay? So... Let's, uh, let's just wrap it up. Listen, again, if you don't agree with what I said, that's okay. You know? I don't expect you to agree with everything I say. I don't even agree with everything I say sometimes. You know? I mean, I agree with it when I say it, but later I'm like, did I really say that? You know, so you learn and you grow, but I'm just asking you to be Bereans, study this yourself, make your own decision. Okay? I'm really convinced that God doesn't want His children to live immoral lives. We're called to be image bearers. We're called to take Christ to the world. And He is a holy God. He wants His people to be holy. In all manner of life, He says, holiness is very important. And when we live that way, we stand out. Because you don't see a lot of holiness in our culture today. So it makes you stand out, gives you opportunity to tell why you live